Welcome to Sujila Kama Extracted Podcast. Today, my guest is uh, Ngosana Moyo. Ngosana is uh, a Zimbabwean national. He has worked uh, primarily in finance, both in the public and private sector. As a matter of fact, he held a position as uh, vice president of one of the divisions of the African Development Bank. Ngosana is also the brain behind the establishment of the Mandela Institute for Development Studies in South Africa. But more importantly, Akan Gosana is my friend. Gosana, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila. And I think you're doing a fantastic job in uh, allowing us to engage with this issue of what we can do to make our countries do better than where they are at the moment. Thank well, you thank very much for, for the initiative. Not at all. It's a pleasure. And I appreciate the people like you coming on board. So as we continue our discussion of uh, value addition in the mineral oil and gas space, I'm struck by the fact that some countries succeed whereas as others do not. And I just wanted you to spend a bit of time looking at what lies behind this. So let's start with Japan. Japan is one of the world's leading iron ore processing and steel manufacturing destinations. Yet Japan has little or no minerals at all. For that matter, Japan is also very successful in processing gas and using gas to fire up its cities. So can you just give us a perspective? What lies behind success in some countries and failure in others? Yeah, I think you, 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 Sheila, you start off with a very good example, which is going to help us, I think, navigate this issue of what are the components, because I think it's more than one. It's not just one particular element. And Japan, I think, is very illustrative. It will help us to navigate this issue. And I think what Japan illustrates in many ways is something that we say very glibly often, that the best resource that any country can ever have is human resources. In other words, intellectual property. All of the other attributes or resources ultimately are harnessed and processed through human ingenuity. So the first, the first place to look for and add is the deployment of human intellect education of the population to make them much more aware of what is possible and therefore navigate around all of the other elements and bring, marshal them together to make sure that the whole makes sense, all the complementarities are put in place. So that's, that's really would be my opening observation that Japan, without any resources whatsoever, is used, essentially has anchored its success on intellectual property. So that is interesting. Now, if we look at Africa, are you saying that by us anchoring our sense of comparative advantage around simply having resources, that this is flawed, that the resources themselves are not an end? Uh, so what is missing? Let's, let's assume that we start with the, the human element. How should Africa's policies proceed then? I think one of the key issues, again, is I, I want to keep stressing this issue that there is no one bullet, silver bullet, that will deliver everything. You have to be able to put a, a few components together, key components. And I'm, I'm going to also use try to use examples and analogies the same way, building on your approach, we use Japan as an example. For instance, when you produce anything, anything at all, 
ultimately you cannot succeed if there is no market. And my sense is that the easiest market to tackle is what I would loosely call a domestic market. And I choose to say loosely because in the context of Africa, we seem to be failing to develop market, a domestic market of scale by integrating our countries from a commercial perspective. So there has to be a market, the easiest market entry point being a domestic market. Once you take advantage of the domestic market to scale up, to refine your product, to learn ex from experience what sells and what doesn't and what customers want in terms of their taste, you can then venture into the much more difficult market to break into, which is the export market, which is a necessary, I think ultimately in terms of economic sustainability of any country, you need to have a sizable component of your offering being essentially desired by a market which is external, which is an export market. That is interesting. Now, uh, apologize for interrupting, but I think you've moved on to an interesting point that I'd like to follow up on. Yeah. You started off by saying you need the human element, but, mm -hmm. uh, and, and now you've moved on to another component because quite rightly, it's not one thing. Yeah. And that is, that there has to be a market that you can leverage uh, and you use that to build, which then begs the question, let us assume that you and I don't prevail on those who are responsible for these policies and that in effect, they do go full speed and they insist on uh, processing in the current environment. What do you think in the absence of that market and that intellectual capital is the likely outcome? Where do these goods find their markets? Well, before, before you even get to the, what, what the consequences of this are that you're going to have what in finance I think you would consider is a very bad investment. In other words, you're going to get a lot of capital deployed in creating the, the capacity to value add on the African continent. So that capital will become dead capital because it won't produce anything on the other side. So it will be totally wasted resources if there is no market. So yeah. we really need, need to navigate very carefully in doing things that give us a return on which we can then build on and add more, taking from the capital or the, or the profits, if you like, that would have made. So that's why taking it in stages is really important. Deploy capital, get a return on that capital, and then take on riskier enterprises if, or endeavors, if you like. But if you go and, let's say, go and borrow money to come, to come and build what turns out to be white elephants, your country will spiral the wrong way. Certainly. Now, let me ask another question. Is it, does it matter, your thesis, does it matter whether or not governments invest in a particular stage in the value chain. In other words, given the state of most of uh, Africa's uh, levels of economic development, are there certain levels in the raw material value chain, which if these countries were to focus on, would be better than say, for instance, upstream, where you perceive that in the absence of markets, and in the absence of intellectual capital. And for that matter, in certain minerals, in the absence of sufficient energy to fire up these plants, 
that you know success would elude us. Is it entirely hopeless, or could we say, however, if you were to focus at this level in the value chain, there is greater opportunity for success? The way I would, and I've got no marketing expertise, so let I'm going to answer I, I, because I want to uh, frame my answer in a particular way. It's important for me to own up and say I'm not a trained marketer. I've got no skills in that space, but common sense tells me the following. If I start at the consumer end, I think the risks where I am the last processor and from my factory door, whatever I'm producing goes to the consumer. I've eliminated any possibility of an intervention to produce something for somebody else to intervene and finish and produce a finished product which is appealing to customers that they already know. I've taken that out. If I go down the value chain in terms of the raw material end, it means I leave other stages after my stage where, where, where other entities can intervene, often recreate and mix things like in metallurgy or in the sort of natural resources space. You know, there will be lots of things that happen in terms of creating alloys of one type or another. So be, before my stage and at the end, the consumer end, there are many stages left which can essentially de-risk what the final product is going to look like. So depending on where you put yourself on the, that value chain, the risk you take on has to be different. And you really need your sensitivity to the final market tastes depends on how close you place yourself towards, towards that market. Therefore, it is important to be clear about your choice in the value chain where you place yourself. This is something that I think is very important, not just because different levels in the value chain offer a certain level of risk, but also because they require certain inputs. And I always thought that a better strategy is to correlate this with the country's own capacity. It's not enough for Botswana just to be a producer of diamonds. Botswana needs to look at herself and say, in the diamond value chain, where am I best positioned to play without destroying value? And I feel that there's a flaw in the assumption that each and every one of the 53 member states can value it anywhere it pleases and be successful. Am I perhaps too cynical? No, no, no. I think you are absolutely right. And that is a, a very valid strategic perspective to take. That firstly, just be aware that where you place yourself on that value chain is got a different risk profile. And it therefore, from a, a risk management perspective, if you're starting on such a journey, it makes sense that you should take the less risky positions before you graduate, if, I, if we may call it that, to riskier positions. Get experience. And even, where you, even if you go down that value chain and take less risky positions, they still depend on you identifying and hopefully going into agreement with off-takers who are going to whatever semi-product you choose to, to produce, there's still a market discipline involved. Who is going to buy and process or further process what you produce? Is there such a market? Yeah. You can't get away from that. Uh, Nkosana, there are 
two ways of skilling a cat, or, or hopefully many ways than just two. If you think about the value chain, for instance, you, you've spoken quite rightly about capacity, intellectual knowledge, but also there is capacity in terms of just the skills to produce, to design, to fabricate. Now, the last time I looked, the skills base in what used to be called technical education, vocational training, and now moving into digital, I don't get the sense that Africa is ready to capitalize on that downstream position, as you explained. Am I right? I mean, if you look at the African countries, if we said, okay, we'll, we'll relinquish uh, upstream and midstream, we'll now focus on downstream. Are we ready to do that in the digital age? Well, I think there is a way to get around it because it can become a chicken and egg issue. The digital age offers us something which, again, we are not very good at exploiting. And I think in many ways, the, the coronavirus has accelerated the global awareness of this uh, offering, if you like, and I wonder whether the continent will catch on quickly enough. The designers of any product today can sit anywhere in the world. So in order for your space to demonstrate there is an opportunity for that skill set, the less risky way to start attracting talent into that space is actually to buy it in from wherever it sits. Because the designing can be done literally, whether it's New York, London, Tokyo, wherever. It does not have to sit in Botswana. But when you, when you start putting together the package of this design has been done and Botswana has added this and this is the final product, the opportunity space begins to become clearer to your own citizens to then move into that to acquire skills and do it and take it on. So you can de-risk that and you can, in fact, accelerate the speed with which you move into that space by buying in skills or yeah, acquiring skills from wherever they reside at the moment, precisely because of the advantages of the digital, digital era. Yeah, so, so I think the, the, you are right about buy-in. You don't have to, to start at ground zero like everybody else. Here yeah. is the spanner in the works. In most countries that I've been in Africa, there is a certain degree of protectionism come xenophobic policies that presume mm. that jobs must be preserved for the citizens. And so if I'm correct that there is this expectation, not just by politicians for that matter, but by citizens mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. rightly say, after six years, why am I not getting the job? Yeah. And they ask that, that question on face value is quite legitimate. Mm. It, it so is, it, but yet it, it's very short-sighted. If I may come in and you, you, you really put your finger on something. And sadly, it's a very emotive issue Often there is no rationality, there is no proper analysis, but it's incredibly, it mobilizes people on emotion. The reality on the ground tells us something has gone wrong. We on the, on the African continent have got resources more than most other parts of the world. We've got a population that has demonstrated its capacity. We invest in educating our people and what happens to them? Most of them then go to countries that are quite happy to take global talent and not restrict acquisition of talent to their citizens. If you like, if you look at a typical country which is grown literally on the back of taking in global talent is the US. 
the history of the US is to do with being open to people who've got something to offer no matter where they come from. And in my, in my, during my lifetime, I've seen the UK become migrating much more towards the US policy than continental Europe. You can see the differences. And we sit there trying to put a lager around our borders and saying, talent, this talent, we invest in our people, then we don't create opportunities for them. And then what happens? Again, wasted investment. Instead of understanding that if we want our countries to really succeed, let's again go on a journey where as we educate our own people and give them opportunities to acquire skills, let's go global and take the, the skills wherever they reside. Hmm. If that will then grow the economy and create even more opportunities for citizens to get jobs. Yeah, you are right. Uh, I think it was former President Clinton who, to fire up the IT industry, invited a lot of people from India. And of course, more recently, the UK itself has brought in a lot of mid-level medical staff and nurses from Africa and different parts, the result of which is that the NHS now, as we speak, is saving that country. But, and many of those nurses now are people from different parts of the world. Not just nurses. If you look at the NHS, most medical people, including doctors, hmm. are foreign. Yeah. So, so, I mean, in the value chain space then, who should really be having this conversation? I mean, are you saying that we have rushed to design value addition concepts without first disaggregating them and saying, right, this is the aspiration to get there. This is how we ought to do it. And this is the sequence. Because my, my genuine sense is that many of the policies on the continent on value addition are mere aspirations, but they, they are not really embedded in any practical executionable plan. Again, Sheila, you, you really are finding the, the what's... The what's uh spots of why we, why we, in many ways, we are where we are. Who should be around the table to have this conversation? Let's look at uh, our continent with a bit of a historical perspective. We came from, most of our countries came from a position where our citizens were excluded from being at the table where strategic decisions were being made. The result of that is that we didn't develop the skills required for that process. Then we get independence and a lot of our inexperienced people go into these high positions of policymaking from a political perspective, not from an experience and, experience and skills perspective, which is fine. That's a journey. Then at the same time, we get a private sector. We're in the private sector because your livelihood depends on it. You don't have an option of employing people just because you like or love them or whatever. They've got to have something to offer. So we get two systems sitting side by side. The private sector, which by and large, has actually allowed our people to get absorbed and grow and develop skills and understand how to think around problem solving and navigating their way into making plans, project management and the like. On the public side for a lot of our countries, we've continued on an emotive reason why people get jobs. So, but again, I'm, I'm saying, given where we came from, I'm not saying that is not unexpected or am I trying to denigrate it? Not at all. But it, 
then raises this, the answer to your question about who should be sitting at having this conversation is that our public sector, if they really understood how to create a country X incorporated, they would make sure that both sides are sitting at the table. Because the one side has developed more skills than the other, but the other has got responsibility for creating the platform on which everything else happens. Hmm. And the best solution, therefore, is to get both the public sector and the private sector sitting down to strategize and make plans about where to go from here. Hmm. Country, incorporated, country X incorporated, so to speak. I'm not going to let you uh, get away. I'm going to press you a bit more. Uh, because I, I think we, we mustn't, we must stay away from the generalities. Uh, I, I think the issues we are raising are important, but at some point we've got to zero in on tangible what, how we move things forward. Mm. So um, you've said the private sector and the public sector must come together. You know, and you've also recognized that there are legacy issues and that people are legitimately injured and perhaps not even trusting yeah. of the other. And, and, and so we started off 60 years ago not trusting for legacy issues. Now, after 60 years, they don't trust us because mm -hmm. when they have put boots on the ground, guess what? The laws have changed. In some cases, assets have been nationalized. And so both sides can now historically put data on the table to demonstrate why they are not going to blink fast, right? Mm -hmm. And so that begs the question then, how do we deal with the issues of mistrust that have gotten politicians, civil society, citizens, mistrusting of the private sector, but that have also gotten the private sector in some countries in a position where they don't feel they can invest enough in our countries without risk unto themselves, you know, because my sense is that it isn't that people don't know the solutions. It is that the conversations operate in a vacuum. We assume that it's business as usual. The reason the United States could say, bring people from India into Silicon Valley is because it was an American president vying for American companies mm -hmm. that are born and bred in the United States and are now exporting uh, the United States brand abroad. Who is the custodian of the African brand in the private sector, ready and willing to invest and work with politicians who see that brand as legitimately African and happy to rally behind it? Isn't that the, the real issue? You are right. But part, part of it is that also we, we, when we, I think that, I think that we exhibit an amazing incapability to learn from our own. In fact, we are not very good at reviewing the journey we've traveled. I'm going to use my own country because ultimately that's the country I know best. I think Zimbabwe, for instance, started on a journey which had to be, uh, had to be undertaken, the journey of dealing with the land issue. Nobody disputed that. We then, if you like, nationalized land took away it away from whites, redistributed land. I think that's a better way to, to put it because it's, it, was, it had to be redistributed. At the time we did this, Zimbabwe had agricultural colleges that were producing black qualified, at least academically qualified black graduates. 
But the way the land was distributed had nothing to do with people who could actually use the land. The numbers are there. So the information is there, the data is there. It was done politically in terms of patronage. We had the skills, we could have done it. Uh, one sector which demonstrated by that by that time Zimbabwe had skills was the financial services sector. People came from international banks, Standard Chartered, your Standard Bank of uh, South Africa, for instance, um, Barclays, and they formed their own very successful financial institutions, which were then destroyed politically. So our failure to run our economies is not because in many, in some ways that we didn't even have the skills, but we let the politics trump economic thinking. We let emotion stamp strategic planning. The, yet globally, there are other countries which show us a different way. If you look at virtually the whole of Asia, all of most of these countries come from a colonial heritage such as we do. Abuse and what have you, but when they got their independence, they very unemotionally or cold-bloodedly almost strategized how they were going to work with their former enemy to create a transition which will lead them to people writing books like Japan can now say no. In other words, you need to pace yourself and know what strength you've developed in order to undertake what task. Don't take tasks that are going to drown you essentially because that is totally unstrategic. So I think that if we were capable of having an honest conversation, conversation amongst ourselves, we would recognize the mistakes that we've taken, most of us, which have led our countries to being where they are, where we were not prepared to invest and take the time to be patient, to build the skills and the know-how to then take over and run whatever it was, whether it was the public sector, the private sector, the health sector, what, what, we rushed into it when we didn't know what we were doing. Mm. And it chucked people out who could have helped us take those baby steps into maturity and then running our country successfully. Mm. Countries like yours, if I'm not mistaken, for some time Botswana had both, I think the central bank and the, the, the chief justice, I think also, were foreign because Botswana deliberately, in my opinion, understood that it needed to invest in the baby steps to mature, to get to a point where its own people could do this. And it illustrates the, the fortunes of Botswana in many ways are a very good contrast to what has happened in the rest of our continent. And we need people who can dispassionately look into that history, look into that journey and help us learn from it because the journey is not ended yet. Mm. I mean, uh, we, could, we could have a conversation on Botswana another time, but certainly Botswana isn't Zimbabwe or Rhodesia for that matter. They were much more, you know, Rhodesia had a lot more skilled people across the board than Botswana. In many ways, Botswana had no choice but to be pragmatic. But you are right too, that that pragmatism prevailed for some time, which, and, and certainly the relationship between Botswana and investors is uh, less antagonistic than I have seen in other countries. But, but I want to, to, to uh, bring us uh, to the end of our conversation uh, in the knowledge that we will have to talk more because clearly there's a lot. I mean, yeah. 
what you're saying is, is, is basically coming back to the subject of value addition is that it's not really the problems that we're having in the space of value addition in mineral oil and gas are not peculiar to those policies, that they are really about the inability of those in power over time to come to terms with how to manage the economy. And that value addition, like other economic development initiatives, is not succeeding because of these reasons. Would that be about right? That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And, and, and we and, shouldn't fall into the trap of just thinking that because I've got the raw materials, I can fall out of bed and make it happen. <laughs> Life doesn't work that way. Yeah. And, and, but you're also saying that, if, if I read you correctly, that we have made a lot of mistakes and that there needs to be a certain lack of vanity on the part of leaders. There has to be a certain instead level of uh, pragmatism and a willingness to just accept that things haven't worked and trace our steps and say, how can we fix this? And, and my sense is that that is really where the problem is because it is too politically expedient what we are seeing now is far too politically expedient and isn't really guided by a genuine desire to take stock and admit yeah. where we have made mistakes and, and where we uh, can learn from others and move forward. We feel perpetually injured and feel that our historic injuries justify the mistakes of today. This yeah. I find very problematic, uh, Nkosan. In fact, Sheila, can I, can I put it this way? In the in financial language, if you like, sort of every single mistake one makes can be turned into an investment provided you are prepared to learn from it. And we seem to have an unwillingness to take the returns which are there to be taken from the mistakes we've made. We can't harvest. Every single mistake is an investment provided you care to learn from it. True. So let me, uh, as a final parting shot, give me one mistake in the value addition space, which if we reflected on and sought to fix, would take us in that first direction, even if we might not necessarily fix everything, but we would at least be taking a first step in the right direction. What is that one mistake we have made? Which we've made, which countries have made on the African continent. It's mm -hmm. very difficult for me or, to- or, or anywhere for that matter. You, you challenge me to, yeah, to name a specific example of where an investment is. Okay, I think refineries is probably, <laughs> do I have to name the countries? No, 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 no. <laughs> and, yeah. and you don't I, I think if you look into, look into refinery space mm -hmm. and they look into also a car manufacturing attempted car manufacturers for tiny little markets which did not make sense. Look at those two spaces. There mm. are plenty of examples. Yes. That, and, and you know, it's funny you should say that. I was reading a journal recently in which uh, the author, I think it was, it's one of the consulting firms, suggested that oil refineries in the world today are closing like you couldn't believe. Because, of yeah. course, Typically in the resource value chain, the midstream is very rarely, I mean, it's not true for every product, but midstream is typically where the margins are very uh, narrow. Uh, they tend to be good upstream and downstream in the consumer space, but the middle, which is where the refineries sit, the margins are very narrow and so profitability very low. And so as a result of that, 
they are closing in large numbers. In Nigeria, for instance, the, the head of the Petroleum Engineers Association there was crying just the last couple of months saying, we just can't keep pouring subsidies into refineries. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you have picked a good example, but of course the refineries are produced because they, on face value, they seem logical. You, you, you produce the oil, you refine it. And if you don't refine it, your citizens say, wow, why would you do that? Little understanding the economics of uh, the value chain. Yeah. But well, if you are a leader, it's your responsibility to then explain to the citizens diligently what is involved and why this course is better than the other. And incidentally, in the space of refineries, in this day and age of climate issues, of course, a lot of us are not going to be doing the analysis we should be doing at the moment that they, the market is likely going to disappear. And if you make the wrong investment at this point in time, again, the risk, the chances are it's going to be just a white elephant. Well, that'll be the subject of our next discussion because I would like at some later stage to look at what the future of the fossil fuels industry looks like on the continent and what particularly these huge national state-owned entities ought to be thinking in terms of how or if they make further investment in that space in the knowledge that it is for all intents and purposes a shrinking industry. Well, Ngosana, thank you very much for your time. I have enjoyed our discussion as usual and uh, no doubt I will be inviting you back as my guest for other topics as we progress. Thank you once again. Thank it was you. really a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, Sheila. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.